Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. Today's guest is New York's own Miss Info, journalist, author, radio, and TV personality. You'll know her from Hot 97, but she's now got a podcast with the similarly legendary Angie Martinez called In Real Life, where they're reunited and talking about their actual lives. It's on Tidal, but psst, it's also on SoundCloud. Misinfos come up in past pods as an inspiration for many of us, so I'm super excited to have her. And because we're just crazy lucky, we've got a very rare appearance all the way from England, Film 4's Julia O, aka Misinfos' sister. Before Film 4, the producers of Ex Machina, 12 Years a Slave, and The Lobster, Julia was the producer for last year's critical darling that won the jury prize at Cannes, American Honey, directed by Andrea Arnold, starring Sasha Lane and Shia LaBeouf. Hi, Julia. Oh, my God. That was, oh, that was so awkward. <laughs> Can we just admit, like, we're friends. We we're are like friends. We've been friends for a long life time. Homies. Yes. So that almost sent me flying for the exit. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The formality of it. I mean, also, I just, uh, I just, I don't even <laughs> recognize <validate>. myself in <laughs> any of those very lofty, descriptive words. Well, the super... And my sister. I mean, it's like... Oh, my God. We're just super dorks. You've known... Mary, P.S. If you couldn't figure it out, they're sisters. Hello. Both O's's. O's in the house. We're the O's's. Yes. And that's just like my crummy sister. Oh, my God. No, but you guys actually... No, the curriculum vitae's are kind of fucking crazy at this point. We just know... All I thought of the whole time was just mom and dad being like, oh, man. But lawyer is still missing. Well, actually, to your point, like, is lawyer still missing? You guys are so accomplished at this point. Mom, mom and dad really thought that you were going to be a lawyer because you argued so much <laughs> for so long. Yo, I there is actually proof. It was in a New York Times article. Um, I don't remember what the I think it was. It came out around the time that that Tiger Mom book came okay. out. Right, right, right. right. Wait, you is this the one where you were like cooking in the yeah, photograph? Yes, yes. I yes. got my tits out because <laughs> that's what I did back then. I mean. But you had an apron on because my mother saw that photo and she's like, are you friends with this Korean girl? I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. finally. Yes. What's up with her tits though? Okay, so anyways, I'm, I'm cooking. It was a charity um, cook-off thing, I love right? that it was for charity, but go <laughs> on. Two to your own body, yeah. Because why else would I show up? Um, and show my boobs. But the the main, I think the caption on the photo was, um, you know, Minya O is also known as Miss Info. Um, her mom still hopes that there's time for her to go <laughs> to, to law, law school. school. I remember that. And I went home to Chicago at some point and I was having brunch with my mom and my mom like pulled out the New York Times because she loves to read the New York Times on the weekends and... That was just, I guess maybe she thought that we were going to sit there and in silence, very <laughs> Korean, and have brunch and read the Times. As one does, yeah. Right. She opens it up, and I didn't know that the story was coming out, and I definitely didn't know that that photo was going to be in there or the caption. And she's like, oh. And she had literally just brought up, hey, 
I know that you're working very hard, <laughs> but we, me and your dad just want to let you know that if you do want to go to <laughs> law school, we will help you pay for it. Oh, that's so nice. Right. <laughs> Cue the New York Times. And I was like, oh, oh wow, my God. this has got to be some, you know, skit But somewhere. did I ever tell you about how when I was in college that mom called me up after she saw the Master P vibe cover uh-huh. magazine issue that you had written? Or no, maybe it was Mace. Mace. It was Mace. It was Mace. And she calls up and she goes, Timon, have you read Unni's cover article of Disguise? Oh, my God. Mace? And I was like, no, Mom, why don't you, why don't you tell me what's going on? How was it? And she's like, it's very well written. Wow. Yeah, that man. is so Korean that you have to hear a compliment from, from your sister. Yes. Like, Years 20 years later. later. <laughs> that is so us. Wow. Wait, but you guys did at least go to, you both went to very good universities. Like, you went to Penn, you went to Columbia. Yeah, but guess what? I didn't even get to apply to Columbia because dad felt so hoodwinked and bamboozled by you. Really? Saying that you were going to go to an Ivy League, but actually just wanted to be in Harlem. <laughs> the jig is up. I, you know, that's funny. I did, I did go to Columbia. Um, I think that there was a lot of stress involved in in getting into an Ivy League school for our family. But I it mean, doesn't mean shit. It doesn't now. mean no one has ever, ever even asked where you've gone to college. And if they no, do, actually, I'm wrong, Mary. The only time that people have ever asked me where I went to college was was during this past year when I started applying to friggin preschool for math. Ah, <gasps> uh, yeah. Now they want to know every single thing you've ever done, where you went to school, um, what and your only, GPA is? Yo, no. I'm, I, I'm, I wouldn't bet be surprised. I vet vigorously, too. Yeah. That's wild. So, I've been able to just skate through life without ever leaning on any, like, academic laurels until I wanted to pay thousands of dollars to send my kid to basically a glorified daycare. daycare yeah. That it's is insane. Staggering. Yeah. But did you go to J school? No. Okay. No. So every what did you major in, Julia? I majored in economics. I couldn't tell you anything. Like yeah. I, I could tell you absolutely nothing. Actually, I thought I was going to apply and become like an economics professor. Because I had one good professor who was like, you know, you should maybe apply to a graduate school. And I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Okay. Really? I love that you were so thirsting for instruction that one <laughs> outlier professor who like briefly mentioned <laughs> yeah, took an interest totally. in me. I was like, yes. I I was just shocked that you either liked or were good at math. Oh yeah, well you remember because this is a side note, but very Asian. Our parents thought that I was bad at math because I wasn't as good as my sister and my cousins. And so they sent me to math camp. Oh, and you of course up. to fix you. Yeah, right, right, to right, fix right. you. And then I went to Northwestern. It was. In, you know, set there and this um, GA guy who was like very white with long hair, but super nerdy. You know, you could imagine him like solving really long problems. Okay. He told my parents in a um, parent teacher conference after the camp, oh no, don't worry. She's good at math. (laughs) I love that at no point would your parents like ever believe you if you were like, no, I'm proficient. They just need a long haired white guy. Had to be a white guy. For a conference. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys would both say conclusively for the interest of this podcast that it doesn't matter at all where you went to college and what for. I actually have a theory that by the time 
and I, I tell this to people and I've heard most this yes. feel like I'm insane. But I have a theory that by the time Max, I, I, I don't really think that I need to save up for Max's college fund because I don't believe that college will be a thing by the time he is college age. Even still, you sent your tiny baby child yes. to science camp over the summer. <laughs> science camp, Spanish camp. Now he's in a, a, a school. He's starting a school next week that is Quaker based. So it's about teaching you like Manners. morality, yeah. how to help people. I thought you were going to say like furniture building. Oh, yeah. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I clearly care about academics, but I don't actually. I think that by the time he's in high school, private companies will have incubator mm. programs where you will go in and start your own business or they will actually start scouting you because you already have your own you know idea or you've already invented something in high school and you've already uh you have a business that you know lives online or you have a shopify or something you know right what? you've scaled and exited thrice yeah totally yeah, exactly uh, but i'm not as optimistic as you i think that it'll go back to trade school where instead of you knowing what you want to do by the time you're 18 a company will probably, like, have you pay them so that you can learn the skills that they need. Interesting. Hmm. Like, if Nike opened up some academy, mm-hmm. then all the future fuckboy hypebeasts mm-hmm. would we'll just be like, oh. To learn how to design or market or so, do all that stuff so for Nike. So it's like pay-to-play, plug-and-play. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Which also, is- can you imagine, though, like, I mean, how do you even, like, change jobs? Because, like, the actual job itself would be, like, the 1950s again, where you're in middle management and you cannot leave because all you are is conditioned to be in this one institution. No, no, I think that nobody is conditioned anymore to do stick to anything. Exactly. They don't, no one has any any commitment yeah, to I think- anything, anyone I mean, period. Yeah. I don't think that I actually don't earth, even think that they're anything. committed to their own identity. I think that you will be able to change your identity so Just many skins, times. Yeah. Just delete and mm. then open a new page, mm. right? Very or true. a new account. So I don't know how that would work, whether you would just pay again. No, no, no. I think you would just, like I did, like I totally. Yeah, you switched up. Switched up. Yeah, you were at Widen for six years, and you were like, "Film is my calling." And like, how did? How, well, yeah, how did that happen? Because well, I've always had questions about this. I did too, because I was like, "Yo, this is a good gig, man." Yeah, that's what you're. You're getting paid said. a lot of money. You're and, working with Google and Nike. Yeah, and all you're these going people. to like all these amazing places, and it's first class. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> no, I think it was business class, but yeah, exactly. I've oh, never I like the kids are I've never, I've never, I've never, I've never traveled business class since then. <laughs> Yeah. But so what what was the reason? I think it was just, you you know, you turn 30 and somehow you're doing a job, but you realize that you're actually a very small cog in somebody else's enormous machine. And I don't mean Wyden because Wyden was an amazing company Mm -hmm. that's still independent. They care about everybody's personality. They gave me all these opportunities. But ultimately, you're working for Starbucks or Target or Uh Nike or something. That's when you really feel like you're only making these other guys a lot more money. And that kind of got a little bit to me. It it totally suits some people. Some people get off on that. They just go, I get to work for the guy who has the most power and I'm going to solve his problems. And that connection makes me feel like I've got some shine. Huh. But I felt opposite. I felt I was just replaceable. But then how did you transition into doing what you, you're doing now? Because you, you assisted, you were like a PA or something for... Um 
like two years yeah. Un- yeah. under Christine Vachon. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really difficult. Switching from any career, I think, is like super hard now. It should be easier, but all the skills and working and being like a responsible adult in a job didn't matter. Because when I moved to New York and I tried to get into film, I had to intern. That was really hard even to get an internship. And then I was cleaning toilets mm. at a dirty office in like Brooklyn, like Williamsburg with, and like learning how to FedEx things. I was like, buddy, I can FedEx this package for Oh, they were Scott do, giving you a tutorial? Yes, man. So you did like menial fucking shit after you did all these Big Willie clients. Yeah. Why did I say Big Willie? But anyway, like, and yeah. how? For a year. So how did you even like, what great reserves of humility did you draw upon for that year where you're like, what the fuck? I think it was that I had done some freelance ad jobs. And so the, the, that sort of thing of opening up a page of my credit card bill and then opening up a page of, um, what's that one? Like um, Lean Cuisine was one of my clients, right? And those two things and saying, okay, I got to write two Lean Cuisine TV spots by the end of the day. I can definitely clean a toilet if it gets me off of doing this for the rest of my life. Really? So you had to like focus in your life. I had to focus. I had to just weigh what it meant to be like a cog in the wheel for like corporate America to maybe being able to like make some art. Did you feel like you were sort of like grasping in the dark though? Like, cause how do you go from like cleaning toilets and FedExing for a year? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you level up? Because like a quote, Hollywood can be such a behemoth. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it's just like a tsunami. Like, and I, this is not good for Asians to say, but basically it's like, if you can survive the shit that they throw at you, then you're let in the door. And then you actually get to assist and they just say, okay, so you have been a PA or been an intern, whatever. You just sucked it up enough to swallow your own pride. Now we'll give you an opportunity. Oh, it's like a hazing? It's a hazing. But it's a sustained hazing. Yeah, because film is a family business. Like you think about it, those were, you know, people who had been in the business, they had gotten into like um, MGM or, you know, any of those companies back in the day. They all were immigrants who had to really force their way into the system. So when you were at Scott Rudin's yeah, office. for one day. Remember that? I called you at lunchtime. You didn't quit after one day. Yes, I did. Oh, oh. no, no, no. It was, after, it was more than one day. But I definitely quit after like two or three. But all those people who stayed there, mm-hmm. you think that like now they're, they have like great gigs? Yeah, probably. Unless they... Are you seriously doing my job right now, Minya? <laughs> oh, sorry. I, no, <laughs> I never asked her. No, this is so fascinating because I remember when you, Minya, told me that you and Julia were... were doing movies and I was like that's great and then I was just like Jesus Christ like and you had to start from the bottom and was like so fucking mysterious and all of us were like but why (laughs) like yeah I didn't I I really didn't understand why I was I was I was worried um but I also knew that you have a lot more discipline and and uh perseverance than I do so I was like, I think she'll be all right. The other thing is that I also knew from all of the Wyden people how much they loved her and they would always want her back. And so I think that even during the lean times or when you were doing like really odd jobs in film, like she could just like freelance for a week and then make enough for right, the year. Right, to runway. But question, hmm. what was like the, ga- like what's the galvanizing <clears throat> moment or that moment where you're like, fuck it, you know, you just talked a little bit about your love of story, but like what, why were you like, fuck it film? Because everybody's like, fuck it film, but they don't 
quit their fucking job and clean toilets for a year. So what was that moment? I think there were two moments. One was when I was on a production set for maybe the first time or second time, I saw the director um, go off with this other guy. And every time that we were about to do a shot or, you know, at the beginning of the day, any time that you saw the director not, like, directing people, he was going off and doing a little walk and talk with one guy. And then I asked my friend and I go, who is that guy that the director is always talking to? And he goes, oh, that's his producer. And that just felt so right. It felt like the director had a right-hand man who he trusted and the one person that he wanted to, like, you know, kind of consigliere with was this guy. So I thought that was such a cool relationship. So that really stuck in my brain. So anytime I met a director, I would try to see who that producer was for them. Because it just felt like the right kind of relationship. Like the relationship I have with you, where it's somebody who's like super sort of like out there and, you know, like creative and has ideas and things like that. And you just want to kind of help them make it happen. So the the behind the scenes sort of like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like the chief of staff or, you know, somebody who's just really believes in somebody else and wants to help them. And then the second one was being stuck in Portland and realizing that the one thing that, like, opened my year up was watching the IFC On Demands um, movie by Steve McQueen, Hunger. (gasps) Dude. Like, 2009 was before Hunger and after Hunger. It just, like, I couldn't believe that you could make that kind of movie because we didn't grow up with, like, like, Sidney Lumet and, like, you yeah, we don't have this, like, c- cinephile history where your parents watch all these storied m- movies and then pass along that love to you. Like, for a lot of us, we're, like, first-generation English speakers, so a lot of the culture we have to just find. Mm-hmm. No, totally. Hunger. Holy shit. Yeah, so it was really just, like, if if this is a place where you can make stuff like that, I'll do anything just to give it one chance to try to make something that I would really feel proud about. And film four, they did shame, right? Yeah. Well, no, they did Twelve Years of Slave. Oh. They, they, they did shame. They did hunger. Okay. So they did all. They dude, did all they're of crazy. This. Actually, I was looking at the, uh, their IMDb, and I was yeah. just like, oh my god, they made movies that like I suggest to people like all the time, like Four Lions mm-hmm. in Bruges. We like, just made Chris Morris's next project, actually. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's so exciting. And so like, and Martin McDonough's three billboards outside of. Um, Ebbing, Missouri is just about to come out, which everybody should go see. I know that's like a total plug, but <laughs> this is Frances McDormand, and she is so, so badass. I mean, she's like always. an undercut, and she's just like, mm. yeah. So <laughs> so you're at Film 4 now. What yeah. is your, your role there? So I'm a creative exec. This is a very, this is something that the U.S., I think, should have. I mean, it would be like as if NPR had money, and mm. then they were going to give that money to people to make stuff. And that's what Channel 4 and Film 4 gets to do, which is like the BBC, Channel 4, there's a few other broadcasters. And they do weird shit like The Lobster, Mm -hmm. like... Mm -hmm. But you know they get their money from the lottery. No, that's the BFI. The BFI gets the lottery? So the British Film Institute gets lottery money that everybody pays for, and they take all that money and they put it into the arts. That's crazy. Oh, shit, I've been telling everybody that you work for the place (laughs) that gets the money from the lottery. But it's a good story. It It is is a good story. It's a dynamite fucking story. It's the same thing. It's like basically they take government funding and then, um, because they're a broadcaster, and then they, they basically commission things. Um, like they commission movies, they commission short films, they commission. They commission a lot of strange stories mm-hmm. that do well, like Ex Machina, fucking weird. Like yeah. to then put all that money behind it and then get the accolades. Like you know, in the rear view, you you seem smart, but like going out with a story like that, like mm-hmm. it's so. Would you say that that's kind of like your taste too? Like these 
Definitely. Yeah. I, they work a lot with auteurs, which is like just that word that's thrown around by somebody who nobody else could do that movie except for them. You mm, know what I mean? Like, totally. If you look at like um, 12 Years or you look at like um, uh, even a, like a Danny Boyle movie or it could be anybody. It's just thinking to yourself like, yeah, nobody else could make that except for that guy. Do you have to be in England for this job? Like, b- b- I mean, is there a similar situation in, quote, Hollywood or domestically that you would be working on this kind of content? Well, it's being a development person. So officially, the, that person exists at Amazon now, and that person exists sure. at Netflix, and they're able to commission because they're a financier. So they're able to say, you know what, director, producer, you're doing great stuff. I'm going to give you some money to go and make Okja. But th- that hands-offness or that sort of like unilateral, not unilateral, but that sort of freedom to make those kinds of creative decisions, like this is something that is seen in prestige TV, but not so much the studios at this point in the U.S. Okay, got it. Yeah, because uh, here in the U.S., they don't have the same ability to say, oh, the government is giving us a channel and we're going to say we'll either invest in that and also, you know, it's a very small investment, but they put the riskiest money up front, which is the development money. Mm. So who knows that it's actually going to come out to be 12 Years a Slave or who knows it's actually going to come out to be a room or something like that, you know? You don't. You have to take a chance on it when it's just a writer or a director with an idea. It's almost like the book industry in that, like, the John Green sort of finances and underwrites all of the other books, and all the other books are like, I sold four. Yeah. And everyone's like, clap, 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 clap. That's really? true. That yeah. yeah, it's very commercial. So it's, huh. it's, it's like this subsidy commercial model where if you make one big hit, like... Um, I love that you... Economics to me. <laughs> it is, that's how they talk about it, yeah. which is which is great. It's basically saying, "Hey guys, everybody, go see a King's Speech." Okay, fine. With that it's money, still a good movie. We'll go out and pay for all these fucked up crazy movies that who knows if anybody's gonna like or not. Yeah, like, like the, American Honey, like, like which right. <laughs> which the log line. You're like, but why? Yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. So. Minya, you also huh. had like a late you you also are experiencing a career change like you were at Hot 97 for like a decade. Yeah. And that was who you are. And like to give a little bit of insight, like terrestrial radio in New York and especially Hot 97, like this is like New York one. It's like an institution. Totally. Like you hear it all the time and people are super reliant on it. What made you decide to leave? Well, I did not own a radio anymore. I never listened to the radio anymore. I asked everybody that I knew whether they listened to the radio, and none of them could confidently say that they were listening to the radio unless that it, unless it was in a taxi cab or someplace where they were like, they had no choice. Um, they seemed to like it, but I didn't also know whether they liked the idea of it or they liked five years ago or they liked when they were in high school, you know, listening to it. So it's like... There were people who were telling me how much they loved me on the radio in the morning, and I haven't been on morning show for so many years, mm, you know? Okay. So I knew that a lot of that was this weird sense memory that wasn't actually reflective of yeah, right but now. You, you were a news director when you left. You could have chilled, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that sense memory would have like the very long tail. It would have sustained you insofar as like people's like vision of you, like... Mm-hmm. To then, like, quit that job and be like, okay, I'm going to reinvent the next chapter of my life is, like, fucking risky, kind of. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there was a couple things involved. Number one, I don't think that my life was ever really at hot or on the radio. I think that the largest part of my public persona was there. But very early on, even, uh, you know, very early on, I had already established myself online. So I had a, a website and I was more active on the internets than I was on the radio. I was on the radio for a very short amount of time, but I was on the internet all the time. And I think that that was one thing that I noticed in general for a lot of radio um, talent. They do kind of get sucked into that glory, um, and it's kind of like being the quarterback of a high school football team. And there were people who were super famous when they would walk outside the city, but it wasn't national. It wasn't syndicated. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why isn't Hot 97 syndicated? You know, why were these huge celebrities that are on um, on, the, on the station global stars, you know? Um, so it was that. I mean, the other thing is, quite frankly, I was pregnant and I wanted to focus more on, like, this new phase of my life. And yeah, you've never actually been that afraid of, like, new things, of new possibilities. Yeah, like, so, you know, what's interesting is that I didn't start in radio. I was never, I, I don't even know how I ended up on the radio because... Well, Sway, you and Sway worked together at MTV and it was just like he, like, Star and Buck Wild was finally he was off a the film. air. He then, was replacing them yeah. temporarily. Um, I, just I was already Star writing for, <laughs> I mean, yeah. legends, right? Yeah. That's what radio is about legends. I don't know who is the next legend of radio, right? right? So I was always a, a, an editorial girl. Like I wrote, edit, you know, just, I even took photographs for Vibe. Like I was always in that structure of there's writers and editors, there's a research team, there's copy editors, there's a top editor. You do rounds, you go through, you check all the typos and over and over and over again. Then three months later, you know, the the magazine comes out. So I, I jumped from that to writing for TV. I jumped from that to being online. I jumped from that to being on the radio. And I jumped from that to, you know, not being on the radio. So, yeah, actually, you just wrapped um, six episodes of Food Grails. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's... It doesn't show at all, though. <laughs> no, I mean, for the James Beard Award-winning food site First We Feast and Complex, Net Complex Network, will there be any more? I would hope so. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, okay, actually, okay. So I'm gonna... It's kind of a no-brainer. It's feeling good, eating food, seeing people... <laughs> Of all different colors and backgrounds um, and talking about food, it is not an expensive show. It is not. It's very brand friendly. Um, it's super brand friendly. Yeah. But actually, you know, um, but I have no control over actually whether it, it continues. <laughs> I mean, I it's kind of it a no brainer. Though. So Food Grails, just for people who don't know, is a series of kind of docu shorts that focus on hyper localized food traditions and it kind of evolves from like neighborhood to neighborhood and it's like Jamaican beef patties, lemon pepper wings. And each episode analyzes the etymology of the underground food icon. And it's actually really interesting because you're like if Jonathan Golden, Robert Sitsima, who I mean, I'm both fans of, weren't white dudes. 
And you kind of get an appreciation for like how rare that is. It's mm-hmm. usually like a little bit colonial and it's usually like, oh, like clap, 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 clap. This person, Marco Polo, this thing. Yeah. But for you, it's very different. And I was wondering, how did the theme and this sort of particular focus come about as like I can what take you would no credit for this. It was completely <laughs> an idea that already came to me fully formed um, because uh, First We Feast did another sort of in-depth feature on chopped cheese. And that's like an uptown classic hood sandwich, right? And I think that they wanted, they realized that nobody else was doing that. Um, It's very easy to figure out what is the most vertically, you know, uh, astounding, expensive foie gras, you know, sandwich. Right, status burger. Right? Like, Like, who, it looks horrible. I would never want to eat that. But I think that the things that people are super passionate about, um, whether it is a chopped up hamburger with cheese on it that you get in a bodega or whether it's um, a taco made in Compton by guys who were like former gang members and are now looking at all the Mexican-Americans around them and saying like, yo, I want to do this. I I need a job. This is a way for me to not only feed people and kind of feel good about it, but also pay my rent. So like, you know, and then on the other hand, it's not all serious and all like moral cause. There's lemon pepper wings. Like you hear about it over and over and over again, every single rap song. You hear Rick Ross talk about it 20 times per sentence. Right, because he has franchises now. Exactly. <laughs> but you're like, what the hell is that thing? I, so, well, But you know what you do really well is that this stems from even like when you were super young and stuff is you get super into a small thing and you want to know everything about it. That's true. Like we would leave her at the bookstore and then we would come out and she'd be like, oh, I know everything about diamonds now. We're like, what? Why? I mean, I would read a book about like columns and all of the different kinds of columns there are like ionic like Corinthian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no seriously seriously very strange 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 child yeah well actually so you know it's really interesting because like perfect example mumbo sauce in mm-hmm. dc where you could almost like draw a fault line being like these people know what that is yeah. these people can tell you that there's three kinds these people who also live in dc have no fucking idea what you're talking yeah. about because it's not on menu and like there's just watching you Talking to a Chinese woman in the back of a DC carryout, specializing in food beloved by African Americans, is this like weird Venn diagram? But that's my life. That's that been is my so life. you. Yeah, that has totally. been my life. I I know that it's really hard for me to think about race because I have operated against racial fault lines my entire life, and I think that. Half of it was because I just wasn't aware. Like, I'm the last person to realize, oh, that shit was racist? Literally. I was, you know, in um, clubs and parties in, in, in Chicago when I was in high school. I was ditching class. And I, I, I just didn't realize that I wasn't like everybody else. And I probably looked like an alien. And maybe some people didn't want me to be there. I didn't understand. Well, actually... What it is, and me and Phil Chang, a huge fan of, the, of Phil Chang, but we were talking about it, and, like, for for other people who aren't you, you are oftentimes the first person who looks like us who gets to be there. Mm. And so, you know, do you think of—so you don't think about that at all? Because for us, we're, like, you know, just on some, like, hashtag representation shit, it's always, like, 
oh shit, I have an inkling of an interest in this. Mm. And it's rendered credible by this person's presence in this like sphere. I have a feeling that in the in the beginning in the beginning. Yeah, I think like <laughs> you know, like now I think that um I kind I maybe I have this benefit of being around so long that um people don't necessarily ever say Oh yeah, Miss Info's here. You know she's the Asian person, yeah. right? Like, I if I'm at you know, um, well now your grandfather some in. super turnt like crazy concert in Atlanta. Mm. I don't think anyone's like she's Asian, <laughs> right? <laughs> but in the beginning, they probably were, and I just was so excited to be there, knew my shit backwards and forwards. Um, Wanted to be useful, wanted to be used, wanted to be helpful, wanted to know more um, in a very genuine way that I don't I think that I didn't notice that people were probably talking shit and they eventually were like, well, fuck it. I mean, she's doing her, you know, doing her thing and she's pretty good at it. So, well, um, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, if you want to think about like a pivotal moment in your career and, you you know, you are a journalist, you've written and edited for Vibe, Double XL, Rolling Stone, The Source, like all the music magazines, especially like, I mean, these were like Bibles Yeah. when you worked there. And so you very, very famously gave Illmatic five mics at The mm-hmm. Source. And people say this, there's been documentaries, like, you know, all this stuff, but how big a deal was that? And how much of a risk was it to let you be the one to anoint yeah. this album as that? You know how, like, everybody talks about, you know, right now it's all about mentoring people. And we talk a lot about womenhood and, like, how do we embrace other women? We talk about um, our race we talk about how like that joins us together, but uh, all of the big chances that I've been given were by people who didn't look like me, mm-hmm. didn't know me shit. Um, so to review Illmatic and Biggie and all of these other albums, um, that was all a white guy, a black guy, a black guy, you know, another white guy who's kind of from <laughs> Oakland, so he's like, I don't know, he was really thugged out, Carter Harris. <laughs> who you now know, runs prop- Ballers. Yeah. Props to Carter. No, they were just people who had the same yeah, level just, of interest. They just, They like, had the same passion as you. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. I mean, mm. I, I, I've heard since then of different women who were not happy that I was around. And that always, like, bugs me out because you kind of think, like, oh, sisters, traveling pants. Well, actually, <laughs> you were never part of the sisterhood yeah, I don't know. traveling pants. No, I pants. mean, actually, the thing that was, stu- like, stunning when I met you when I, like, however long ago, Jesus, I've been in New York for 16 years, is I was really struck by how nice and welcoming you were. Like, because truth be told, like, we, you know, I worked at double XL. I worked at mass appeal. A lot of the time it was just like me and like a couple other women. And Mm -hmm. then a lot of the decision makers were dudes and you were just really nice. And I, I remember thinking like, wow, it's awesome that 
you're just like so chill as a woman. But you know me. You know I'm actually not a really nice person. <laughs> no, you're not. I mean, a, I am very like, selective. I talk shit. No, you're very selective. But you were friendly, and yeah. I was professional, and you were professional. It was nice. It's like why? Why hate on you? You know, one there was a this one moment that I remember. I had just started MissInfo.tv, and I remember writing about something, and I I realized I could copy and paste an image from something else, and then. Use it on my <laughs> blog post. Like, wow, this is cool, right? <laughs> and um, I remember that then I got these comments that were like, you stole this photo from this other site. All you, you know, why didn't you credit it? And I was like, oh, wait a second. I don't, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. And then I realized, oh, if I just credit this other person and link to them, then they get something from me and I get to use their photo. And now we're kind of like friends, and we would talk back and forth, you know, this this other blog that I that I stole a photo from, right? And then fixed it. And ever since then, it kind of, like, made me feel like, why don't you give credit? Or why don't you, like, meet somebody? Or why don't you, like, get to know them? It doesn't cost anything. Yeah. That was the main thing. I was like, oh, shit, this doesn't cost anything. Yeah. But it still pays something. I think other people think that this, like, success pie is just that. It's yeah. like... Literally, Finite, yeah. It's just one apple pie, and you all have to have your own slices. Somebody has a slice, then you don't get one. Yeah. But it's infinite. Like, yeah. They, I know people who are like that. They are so sad. Well, actually, and you can't afford to be like that with this, like, incredible velocity with which technology is changing. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're just being clenched and weird about yeah. your little fiefdom, you're fucked. Oh, you're going to be extinct. Totally You're going to be stuck in a mud, like, just sinking, being sad. <laughs> holding on to whatever little crumb you have. Irrelevant. And, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I can do also, that all by myself. I don't yeah. need success to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't care about a lot of the things that uh, I think drives a lot of people. I, I never really cared about actually being famous. Um, I never really care about. Because fame is so embarrassing. That would be. Yeah. I mean, I barely care about money. It's, it's really, it's really <laughs> weird. Really yeah. Highly unusual. Yeah. And well, actually, you know, when Naomi Zeichner wrote that BuzzFeed piece on you mm -hmm. and I was interviewed for it, I was just like, I have 40 minutes worth of stuff to say. <laughs> and the one thing that she ran with on the quote was that your career hasn't ruined you. And that it's true, like you sitting there being like, ah, you know, much to my chagrin, I'm not interested in money or fame. But mm. like this has served you in terms of longevity like crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Because you're still intellectually curious. If you were, like, going to a destination, you'd be like, and I'm done. Yeah. I don't... And also, I don't... Um, I didn't rack up really devastating debts. Ah, uh, Asian. Right? Yeah. Personal debt. Emotional debt. Um, I have, in my elder years, realized that there's some amount of debt that actually makes you closer to somebody. So I think that the fact that no one ever, I never ask anybody for help and they only ask me for help. And mm -hmm. I'm always like, yes. I mean, I literally am the person that when a tourist looks a little bit confused, I'm like, where do you need to go? Yeah, that, but that's from, that's because we're from Chicago. We're Midwesterners. That's but, you know, at, at a certain point, you should also ask because that makes you closer to somebody. Right. If you always float through life. Right. Um, debt free, then you don't build up any credit. That's definitely that first generation, though. So, but that is so like same. 
That yeah. is everything to do with like my intimacy issues. I'm in talk therapy for the first time in a really long time. And it's like I'm learning things about that. Like I sit here and I'm just like, you know, ruling your fiefdom is bullshit. But it's true. Like I never ask for things. No. And ever. then if you never ask me for help, then and it is I don't an, think it's like an, you need me. And it's an intimacy issue. Yeah. yeah it, it feels like a risk. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, going back to when you started your website, I mean, it kind of started in part, if I'm not mistaken, so that you could address your fans after like another sort of big deal thing in your career happened, mm -hmm. which you, you, Julie, you funnily enough, well, not funnily, you brought up tsunami earlier, which is what I'm uh -huh. referring to. But like, so this is kind of the point at which I think you became like the patron saint for all frustrated Asian people. Yeah. Like in pop culture. And so And think about how much like you were ahead of the game. Like No, totally. And like actually, today we're still frustrated and we get this guy who's gonna be in Hellboy to like finally say, Oh no, actually I probably should have The whitewashing play that. issue. Yeah, yeah totally. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, so um just to give people a little TLDR on, on the incident in question, but basically Miss Jones at the time, another Hot 97 host, DJ Envy, and this comedian Todd Lynn played a parody song spoofing We Are the World and made fun of the Indian Ocean tsunami back in like 2004, early 2005, that killed almost 250,000 people. Unreal, yeah. Unreal. And the song explicitly makes fun of Asians dead mothers, child slavery that results from dead Asian mothers, swimming chinks. And Hot 97 played the song, and you would be on the air, and you would just pipe up. You would be like, and not mis misinfo, yep. or like, and not me, and not me. And now it's like, you know, it's like the era of the woke. And I got suspended for that. Yeah, no, it was like <laughs> a lawsuit. And yeah, yeah it was I, mean, like I mean, but the thing that if you go back and listen to it, and I might actually play a little bit of it on this and record it in, because... You know, we're in outrage Twitter. We're in wokeness. Yeah, imagine. Everything. Imagine if that happened Yeah, but now. Back then, if you listen to it, they are furious at you for not playing yeah. along. I haven't heard the Tsunami song, but I would love to hear it myself. All right, well, I would. Now is as good a time as any. Starring the Miss Morning, Miss Jones in the Morning Show players. Yes. Minus Miss Info. Of course. Okay, that's it, damn it. Why don't you just quit? Yes. Why is it always minus you? No, yeah, why aren't you doing like everybody I else? I'd show stop that, the ah! That song is really offensive to me, and I opted not to in involve myself. But why do you always have to try, like, if you feel that way, then why are you even on the show? Like, you always have because to separate support, yourself. Nah, because I support the fact that all of you guys have the right to say anything that you want to and make fun of anything that you want to, and I understand that, especially in a tragedy, that's one way that people deal with things. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I just felt that I needed to opt out of it because me personally, I couldn't deal with it that way. I couldn't right. make fun and of while, that. And while we all respected that, because I don't think anybody was knocking your door down to come and ask for your vocals on the song. No, I mean, why I do you? Ask. Well, wait, mm -hmm. I'll let you finish. Let me finish, please. Yeah. Why do you always have to make it known that you're separate? Like, no, I, I feel like, like you always, always have to make you, it known. No, you do. No, you do. You always so, make it known case, that, oh, I, do I don't feel that, that way. And there is an absolute, like, expectation for you to be completely complicit yeah. in in you making fun of 250,000 dead Asian people. Like, but, what but was that like? if you remember, very, very specifically, I said it's not about just being Asian. It's about being a human being. Right. I wouldn't have cared what kind of people they were. I If there was 
puppies. It was anything. It just, I think that, okay, first off, I want to be very clear. I am not, I'm not like the person that always does the right thing. So every day you're faced with different situations and sometimes you make the right decision and other times you make the wrong decision, right? And for the most part, all of those wrong decisions just float by, you know, you live to see another day and you're fine. I have never been so happy that I made the right decision at that time, right? Like it was just like, instead of swallowing it, and I think that we all um, swallow a lot of things. I think that's what spoke to Asian people. Not that you were like standing up for Asians specifically, but just that we as Asian people in this country live in this sort of sort of like liminal melanin state Mm -hmm. where we are expected to laugh at black jokes if we are in an all white room Mm -hmm. or we're, you know what I mean? Like we don't count. Like we are expected to laugh at Native American jokes and you just didn't and you weren't silent. And I think in that moment, we all sort of felt a collective sort of guilt of like all the times in which we have been silent. And I think that's what made you a really, really big deal. I wonder, I wonder whether it was also because it wasn't me that was being attacked um, in the song. And it was actually, you know, I think that Asians, Asian Americans can be very self-effacing. And if someone says something horrible to them, to their face, they'll just take it. Don't make trouble. But if you if like, for example, somebody says something about my sister, I will kill you. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the interesting thing is that that was such a toxic environment I had been attacked on so many levels every day, literally every morning, and no one cared at all. (laughs) Like, they were hearing it on the air. There were no Asian people, and I know a lot of Asian people, Asian Americans, Asian American New Yorkers, listen to that show. No one ever complained about things like, we all know why you're in hip-hop. It's so that you can have sex with black people. It, it was like all of these things. You should be thankful that we have give, allowed you to work in this industry. Like things like that every well, day. Well, actually to that Miss Jones thing, she actually says that you think you're superior yeah. and separate and that basically that you're too good to do the job, that you don't yeah. kiss ass, that you don't put celebrities asses out there. And she's like calling you out and she's very angry and yeah. i was wondering like is this accusation that you quote think you're better than whomever like something you've had to deal with your whole career because she gets mad at you for being a journalist like it's yeah. like all sorts of shit you know i think that you know th- there some sometimes um an er- interpersonal dynamic is more about that other person and what they're living in right you know what type of happy or unhappy place they're in. Yeah, and Miss Jones can SD in the upside down for the rest of eternity as far so, as I'm concerned. I would just say that that's one thing. The other thing is I I think that um, I have asked myself, well, why won't I post certain things when I, I think that it will get more traffic? You know, this is when I cared about traffic more, when people were trying to get me to blow up more? Why didn't I say things that were more salacious? Or why did I have to wait until I got confirmation? Um, 
And it's just that I think that that's just the person that I am. That's what I love about journalism. I don't I think that it's outdated. I think that it hasn't necessarily served me to blow me up. You know what I mean? And I think that I'm fine with that. So I I. Is it superior? No. If anything, it's freaking inferior, according to, you know, the way that the world works and how you really, like... Win. Win. Yeah. Right. Um, do you get that when you care more and you... Does that make other people feel uncomfortable? Possibly. Um, so you just have to be okay to be in that uncomfortable place. So it has much more to do with your own sense of like credibility and integrity than like some sort of model minority myth. Yeah, no, I, I think that, and especially nowadays, I wonder whether there is as much of a model minority um, burden. I feel it all the time, to be honest. I feel that... For like, yourself. But do you think that, like... I don't know. I'm old. <laughs> a millennial Asian American is saddled with the same... I have to believe that, yes. I mean, sure. If you are, like, famous at, like, 16 and you're a beauty blogger and you have millions of dollars and, like, you, quote, don't th even consider yourself as Asian because once your face is beat and your eyebrows are on fleek, everyone's mm -hmm. everything. Whatever. Maybe. But I do think there is an expectation that perfection is somehow more attainable for Asian females mm -hmm. or that it's easier for us. I do think that there is a weird thing that like we have a natural predilection for that bar to feel lower even when it's not. I guess what I'm just saying is when I was growing up, come Halloween time, <laughs> okay, it wasn't. Hot, sexy, Asian party night all night long. And now it is. Right, and right. you didn't go to a music festival and it wasn't like all the Every, buffed out tan Asian guys. On so much ecstasy. Like the Asians using girls, ecstasy. Yeah. All looking super hot and with big butts. True. Okay. We have butts now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, having a great time alongside everybody else. Like it wasn't the same sort of like now. I feel like. We are equally achieving and underachieving. That's true. <laughs> but well, so, Julia, I was wondering, do you have any, do, you know, I guess like, do you have any of my baggage <laughs> as it relates to your career? Like, do you have to consider your identity as it relates to like the cultural artifacts that you love and make? Well, I was talking to this really cool playwright um, who's half Japanese and half um, Irish and he has a play that's Torment. coming out. I know, in the national. I know, talk about it. But, um, like double Korean? Well, yeah, almost, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exponentially. Uh -huh. um, and he has a play that's um, that he is trying to cast East Asians for, and he can't because there are not enough British East Asian actors, and they're all in, like, Marvel shows or something. Like, like the four <laughs> working ones are actually working, you know? Right. So they're going to try to find some ones in America. But <laughs> they have to import American Asians. E East Asians. Jesus. East Asians. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, they're all being taken up. But he he basically said he was like, um, yeah, what I really want to do is make um, Eastern Promises, but, like, with an East Asian. And I go, <gasps> if you made... A full-on just like but gangster, every... like a yakuza. Yeah. No, no, man. Just basically saying like, hey, in like Chicago oh. or New York mm, or London, yeah. if you go down to Chinatown and you want some Chinese food, guess what? 
something else is happening in that all cash business mm-hmm. and somebody is going to have a murder or be shady mm-hmm. and there's you're going to have one guy who wants to be a detective who's going to solve that crime like any other awesome you know uh Dennis Lehane kind of like right. Boston set right. you know thriller but instead of them being white just make that detective or that private eye Asian. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see. I just want to see films or TV shows or anything where like they, they actually are making one right now. They're shooting one with um, Sandra O, oh, where she plays like an MI6 officer and it's written by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's not because she's Asian and she's coming from like, you know, the Yakuza or anything. They just happen to say, oh, this girl had this job. Look, she's not white. Hmm. That's my goal. That's my dream is to commission that kind of stuff. And it can be black, white, Asian, like any minority, just change it up. Just don't make it just about them being that race, you know? Oh, I see what you mean. So I have a question, like, for both of you. Do you feel, like, as a person of color, that you almost have to go through, like, the second rite of passage as it relates to your career and your art insofar as when you make a thing— you have to reckon with how you're like different from like the black hip hop pundit or the Jewish comedian or like what old Hollywood means as a euphemism. Like, do you feel like it's like now finally my taste and my output is sort of coming together and now I have to process this other thing about cultural identity and like what I'm presenting into the world? I don't think it's a burden. I think it's a total opportunity. Like, I think it's just a gift. Like, the more diverse people that you have actually getting to have a hand in creating culture, the better. It's not like I process it. I, like, my first judge is just like my sister. Is it good enough? Like, mm-hmm. how good is this artist? How good is this story? Who am I helping that's going to make some good shit? But if, they're, if they suck, then I'm not even questioning that. The second part of that is definitely, well, okay, we have, you know— 30 projects that don't have directors. We have 24 projects that have women on it. What the hell? Let's just take some of those projects that need directors and put more women on it. You just keep on trying to do that, you know? So nothing about the job that you do is easy. Like, okay, just to give people a little Mm -hmm. bit of background. So I remember when you first started working on the Andrea Arnold movie, American Honey, and Minya was like, holy shit, Julia's on a Shia LaBeouf movie. And all of us did a collective, like, holy shit, she made it. She's, you know, because for a while we were like, is she languishing? Like, yeah. there's still time for law school for her, too. Like, we were just wondering. Very true. And then you kept being on this movie. And then you kept being on this movie. Like, yeah. this, how long did it take from, like, start to finish? Well, the director herself, Andrea Arnold, she makes a movie every, like, six or seven years. So for her, the process is, like, crazy painful. I just came on for maybe, like, the three years. Still painful! (laughs) In comparison to And also, it it, it was, like, kind of a very weird movie because, you know, Andrea Arnold famously um, casts a lot of unknown people Uh or, like, real actors. And, Uh you know, you had to contend with everyone sort of, like, living with the movie as this, like, moving, multi-headed caravan because some of these kids didn't have cell phones. Like, yeah. What was that like? It was really crazy. I mean, talk about a generational film. Like, I don't think that movie to me sums up what where we're living right now, which is yeah. it was pre-Trump. It was kids who were white who 
actually thought that they were like more down and more into trap and like so much OG makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like they yeah. were full on just like because of being poor, also being from the South, also just being young and like YOLO, you know? Mm-hmm. And all of that meant that they didn't have many like aspirations to do anything but get money. So we cast them. They had their own story. They're all beautiful people in some way, but they were also just like 21-year-old, I want to, you know, get high, get drunk, and like but then also you buy took, Jordans. And then you took these people and then put them on a movie set. Mm, well, not really. So the thing that, that what I think the reason why that movie is going to probably like last, you know, in the way that like a kids last or, you know, gum or just some crazy shit is because we didn't make it a movie. We adapted all of our process and the way that we made that movie to those kids. So instead of the kids becoming actors, the crew members became magazine crew kids. So all of us became more like the real kids that we were trying to tell a story about than a movie set. We didn't have any um, movie trucks. We didn't have any like special lighting. We had no camera cars. We didn't do. We had minivans. We stayed at shit motels, and we all ate like Buffalo Wild Wings. Buffalo <laughs> Wild Wings. Seriously, how do you keep the faith? Um, because that, I mean, the, the question of like work-life balance yeah. when you're on that movie doesn't even come up. Like, yeah. you you were in the cult, right? I think it was a decision right before that. It was that I had gotten into the films. I had changed all this stuff to make something that I really cared about, and so I took that job, saying I'll take this job at Parts and Labor if I can work on Andrea Arnold's movie. Because I, I just believed in it. And that process of however, you know, terrible it was going to be or how many bed bugs everybody got or something was going to... Did that happen? Oh, a lot. Um, would be worth it because we were going to make something that would live on beyond us. So, blessedly, the movie itself did incredibly well. Like, critically, not... Nobody saw it at the box office. This is a three-hour movie. No kids go see three-hour movies anymore. Yeah, but... It will have a long tail. And a great soundtrack. There's, like, so many really wonderful things about it. And Thank you. No, and it was, but it was a critical darling, and that does matter. And also, like, you know, an Andrea Arnold movie of this type of nature, you don't know. It could bomb critically and also bomb at the box office. Yeah, it definitely got me the job that I have right now. Like, I think for the right reasons, it paid off in that when you meet people and you get to talk to them and they hear that you made something... They're curious about it. They respect you for it. You know, it matters to them as artists. It's like an influence, like that kind of thing. Do you make money now? No. <laughs> no. Oh, you know, shit, really? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, my so our dad did something amazing, which is like, you know, they own toy stores. Yeah. They're very just like, we're going to work our hardest, and if we make money, we're going to give it all to our kids. Our kids will hopefully make a better life for themselves. But famously, I remember I went to tell my dad that I was quitting advertising and this, like, really good-paying job to go and try to work in film. And he said, okay, you should do it for more than one year. Give it two years, and we'll talk after two years. Because the first year will be so hard, and you won't make any money. If the second year you don't get a job, then you'll know that you shouldn't do this, and you should go back to your, you know, real job. So he, he was really generous and like that was such a gift. Yeah. Do you feel like you had to, this is a question for both of you, had to train your parents to be accepting of who you guys 
are as like adults and creative professionals? Um, like I had to break my parents. Yeah, I don't. I think that they still worry. I think that the the life hack that we didn't realize is that all we had to do for these two people is give them a grandchild. I was going to say a son, like a masculine heir. You yeah. have no idea. <laughs> these are two but very crotchety, very demanding, pragmatic, very pragmatic um, uh, you know, high-tension Korean people. But with my son... It is like nothing can go wrong. Everything is, he's a genius. They're so happy. So I don't know. Well, no, but I think we also were like, we have the benefit of them getting older. So our parents are, you know, in their like late 70s. Yeah. Like by that time, our dad has lived long enough to just be like, I just want you to be happy. Like, that's true. It's but you not know what? really it's about just... money and you getting married and having this like perfect Korean family or anything. I just want you to be happy. I am beginning to suspect, though, that our parents being of the same generation mm-hmm. and being immigrants, that it's not that they were like, I wanted you to be a lawyer. It's that they thought being financially sort of secure in lawyerdom would mean happiness. Yes. Absolutely. And that's the sort of part I'm figuring out, that my parents are worried that I'm going to be unhappy, not that I'm going to be destitute. It's true. And they didn't assign, we thought that they assigned some status to these mm. different jobs, but it's actually not that. They they always wanted me to be a part of a company and stay there till I died. Like, that was the 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 model. You go there, you work really hard, you're probably not moving up anywhere, but you have a solid job and then you retire and they give you a pension and a watch. Which is so weird because our dad totally left a big accounting firm to yeah, do his own they didn't thing. do those well, things. Well, that's the thing about immigrants that is like kind of the catch-22. It's like there is no more vivid example of entrepreneurship than our own parents. Yeah. And that's all we learn. And they're like, no, you have yeah. to be a part of like Join IBM. the monolith. And yeah. we're like, no, we want to just be like you. It's fine. <laughs> and they're very, like, very fuck, true. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like you only remember that you can do stuff on your own and be your own kind of thing by the fact that your parents came here not speaking any English. Yeah. In With like, like 100 bucks. Exactly. Yeah. And then like figured it their, out. Yeah, figured that it's out. So I, I never thought about though what you're saying in terms of them just wanting us to be happy and thinking um, that happy, the path to happiness is all of these things that they push so hard. But I think that's really true. And I, I, I actually wish that they could enjoy that as well. Like, I just Mm. wish that they didn't, um, that they didn't worry so much that they, um, didn't always think that happiness had to be defined by certain things. It's funny, though, because at the end of the day, you're a mom now. Yeah. And I feel like you're going to have the same things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not going to be something as finite or like stereotypical as like being a lawyer, but it's going to be a thing where you're going to like assign some sort of like totally significance. Actually, to. I think that's what you you know, when you were saying, oh, we expect a perfect kind of ness of us, like our standard is super high. That that's got to be genetic because like. There's there's no way that like the kind of standards that I put on myself and like how much I'm supposed to achieve or all those things come from my parents or something. It's got to just come from us really. as a people, as a people, <laughs> like the three of us, <laughs> the three as of us, a man. broken people. No, yeah. I don't know. Oh. I don't know. 
So in terms of like your love of story and mm -hmm. film. I how? totally don't watch a lot of films, by the way. I'd much rather read books than watch films. That's she can read a beautiful. book overnight, by the way. It's freakish. <laughs> I'm going to send you my book. I'm actually freakish. the same way. I like eat books. Yes. I'm just like, Wah. and then that's yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> like remember like um, that um, Wes Anderson, you know, where like the um, those foxes were eating and they would yeah, yeah, just fantastic Mr. Fox. That's how I eat books for sure. Me too. But I always wonder like, so if I quizzed you the next day, did you actually catch everything or did you just get like the general scheme of the book? Definitely caught everything. Wow. Yeah. Super fast reader. Like can be quizzed. So you, I've noticed, and again, I'm just going to put all my expectations and whatever onto you. So since moving to London, you've been taking a lot of photos, and they've been quite, like, cinematic. Do you want to be a director? Never. Really? No, no I had to direct one um, commercial for my best friend's, um, like, first startup or something like that, and it was awful. <laughs> there was a moment on set where we had, like, this, like, award-winning DP, Darren Liu, and he's like, so what do you want to do, Julian? I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, move the camera? I had no idea. I, like, could not think cinematically. I could not think about movement of the camera so that the image changed. Whereas the art director friends of mine, everything they do is just about the image that they see. I was much more interested in the story. What makes you a good producer? So the producer part... Because that's a lot of decisions, too. The producer part is saying, I know what is best for the whole project. I'm not attached to an image or a direction or this sentence or something like that. You know what I mean? Whereas like the screenwriter probably is or the director probably is or, you know, the actor probably is. You're trying to think about it as like, who would everybody want to, what's best for this project in terms of like what the director wants to do wholly, you know, not just like themselves or in that moment because they're emotional. You kind of try to give everybody the best version of themselves. You know what I mean? That sounds like a lot of fucking work. It also sounds emotionally expensive. It's very yeah. I I had to I had to go see a like I had to go see a homeopathic doctor after American Honey. I also went to like a crazy expensive spa with a friend of mine. But <laughs> it's basically the doctor said you have no adrenaline left in your adrenal <gasps> glands. So that's why you're so fucked up right now. That's why you're in post production blues is called. Because you're just taking everybody else's emotional shit, like a therapist, their actual shit, their problems. And so then you're just running on adrenaline for like, I mean, know, she was like months. saving lives. She was like driving people to the hospital. I was doing some crazy. But also like Shia LaBeouf at stuff. this time was not, was a very turbulent <laughs> yes. person. And yes. also prone to getting a lot of tattoos, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he got all these like um, rap icon tattoos. We all got tattoos though. That was just <laughs> that was just the trip. Yeah, it was it was really really it was stressful in a way that you don't realize cuz you're just trying to hold everything together with like duct tape, you know? Like a you just I I was surprised that nobody died basically. How did you learn to do this job? Um I think you learn by doing. So that's the only way I think you can learn how to produce. Because there's certain things that are like, how do you read this contract? Or how do you negotiate with an agent? Or, you know, how do you um, make sure that this actor doesn't freak the fuck out? You know, I think you can only learn by doing. Are you like a tough person on set? Like, you know what I realized? What? Yeah. That I'm very good in a crisis. So if like. That shocks me not at all, but continue. If everything is going like, 
you know, the sirens are on and there's cops right there and there's kids over here and somebody had a knife, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. There could be like actual blood involved, whatever it is. I'll just come in and be super chill and just talk to them. I have a really like kind of like, you know, 12 year old face and I'll just say, hey, officer, I think we can work this out. You know, this is what we should do. <laughs> or like to, you know, an irate, you know, agent or something like that. I'd just be like, hey, let's talk about what we could do. Like, I'll just kind of diffuse. So what does your head up display look like when there's like 17 sensory inputs like that? Do you just focus on like, does your brain just organize it like these are the crises in terms of most important and then you just go down it? Like No, I think it's all gut instinct. I think you just know which one will be like. You're so annoying. You're basically just t- sitting there being like, I'm just really good at it, like <laughs> no, preternaturally. No, no I, think, I think literally it's it's the fact that I think A, as women, as, you know, we're as like a younger sibling or something, you're just a little bit more empathic. Empathic. Yeah. You're a little bit more aware of what other people are going through. And you're trying to say to yourself, okay, I don't need to be any way the start right now. All I need is for this to keep going after the fact. So what will solve this problem right now? Did you feel growing up that you were living in Minya's shadow? And no, di- not in her shadow, in reaction to her, which is like, I think the huh. best thing that could have ever happened to Unpack me. Unpack that for me. Meaning <laughs> that like she broke down all these barriers and she was totally herself. She was also a black sheep. She was also, you know, I was difficult kind of for difficult my parents. Yeah. And, you know, like yeah, I just you had like no eyebrows and you had that <laughs> motorcycle and like everyone before I met you would confide in me like that they were a little bit afraid of you. <laughs> I mean, she would do some things that, like, only somebody who's really, like, super into themselves and the thing that they want would do. Like, you're going to pretend like you picked me up from a cello lesson, but you didn't. You went to the south side of Chicago, and I'm just going to wait outside of (laughs) the building (laughs) until it's, like, for hours, you know, midnight, and you come and pick me up. Like... And I'm like, that's normal. And this we're all part of this program. Let's get on board. <laughs> like, she just did things that were so, you know, f- like, ballsy that in reaction, I definitely tried to not do as crazy things in terms of, like, giving my parents a heart attack. Mm. But it it made me think I don't have to do it this way. Like, there is another way. You know? Mm. It was incredible. I definitely grew closer to her as we both got older yeah yeah did you guys fight like fucking crazy when you were like not really because i always felt superior to her there's this whole thing (laughs) in korean culture which is like you know firstborn yeah like younger sisters older sister don't even have the uh they don't even have the credibility (laughs) to call me by my name like yeah (laughs) you have to actually call someone unni yeah Yeah. deferential yeah it's an honorific so it's like when you're raised that way, I mean, the same way that Korean men, like our, you know, our dad would sit on the couch and then when dinner was ready, he would get up and go <laughs> sit down and eat. And then after he was done, he would go back and sit down at the couch and we would just like handle the dishes. Right. So like, if you're like that, of course you think that that's the norm. <laughs> In hindsight, I know that that was not. <laughs> I'm glad that because of that, Julia is like a super badass Zen person who can come in and basically crisis manage anything and it's interesting because now she crisis manages me. So, like, if I have a fight with my mom, she doesn't pour gasoline on it. She definitely pours water on it. And if I'm, like, complaining or freaking out about something or very, like, I don't know, me, she'll be like, 
all right, you're being ridiculous. Chill out. And it's like, oh, well, you're right. Would you guys work together in the future? We've worked on a couple things. Yeah. Okay. How, really how does fun. that go? Yeah. We worked on something for Sprite um, oh, at yeah. Wyden Kennedy, New York. And I was like, I don't understand what you're doing hiring me. You should just hire my sister. Because, like, what is Sprite trying to be? Like, dirty Sprite. Like, they're trying to do something, obviously. They're trying to reference hip-hop, yeah. So then I would just come up with these ideas and, and drop put, names. And then, and then, then I would she put them would in format speak. it. I would, oh, I would, yeah, like, so it was a great like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. That yeah. worked. That really worked. We yeah. should do that again. <laughs> okay. Hire us. Hello. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you both want to be doing in like 10 years? In 10 years? Oh, well, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's answer for each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So my sister wants to own a countryside manor hmm. and she wants to have horses and she wants to just have Max and be able to go horseback riding like she's some kind of like english earl or something earl. Yeah. I'm like a beatrix potter i mean i i i am a horse horsey person you are and I, that's like a very un, like kind of little known no, fact it's weird it's yeah. a little weird anglophile yeah jod yeah i love jod um i would like to be on a bridal path yeah but yeah i mean you didn't put any job in there, so no, that no, I no. mean that's probably pretty accurate. Like I, I am not the most ambitious person, but I love. I didn't put any job projects <laughs> that I can sink my teeth into and then walk away with no equity. Yes, <laughs> but yes. You know what though? I'm I, I'm lucky enough to be in a, a partnership where like my my better half is actually the complete opposite. Like he is a super ambitious. Very accomplished, disciplined, hardworking, <laughs> yes. supportive person. So yeah. I, I'm just like, oh, no, me and Gucci, man, want to make some T-shirts, <laughs> yeah. right? Exactly. So to that, I find it so fascinating that you know where all the skeletons are buried. Like your name is literally misinformation, and yet the autocomplete slash Google Google related searches for your name are. Oh my God. How old is Misinfo? Misinfo Bio, Misinfo Baby Daddy, Misinfo Networth, Minya O Age. See, people got smarter. Minya O Husband, Minya O Wedding. How did you do it? Wow. You're like you're like fat Carl Lagerfeld photographs That's and that it doesn't crazy, exist honey. on the internet. And yet people that is- and you're surrounded by journalists. Want it. <laughs> oh my god! No, I mean, I'll, like, I'll give it to them. <laughs> no, how did you do that? People don't know anything about you. That is exactly how I entered near my entire career. Talk about everybody else. Never talk about myself. Yeah. This is a Kaiser terrifying, yeah. horrifying experience. By the way, this Kaiser Soze That's doing a podcast yeah. as a, as the interview subject. I I just don't like it. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> I don't want to do it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I never I never talked about relationships my own. Like I never I never glorified like nowadays. It's like, yay, we're dating. We just met. We're dating. We're in love. Oh, my God. I, where is he? But I like, love that. I you, broke up with him. Mm-hmm. I'm sad. Like, you never gave them a pound of flesh. Because the this is the main thing, and I and I tell this um, to pretty much every woman that I that I know in the business. I'm always like, well, the problem with when you sort of reveal your personal life 
because of the double standard in this business is that that becomes the lead item. And everybody who knows you, doesn't know you, that's the first thing that they're going to mention. They're never going to, most of them, they're never even going to get to, oh, and she also just, you know, created this incredible website or she just published this book. It's always, did you hear she got dumped? Did you hear she's dating so-and-so? And then it's like, it's, it's how like obituaries always talk about what they looked like if it's a woman. Yes. And like Is how that they, true? yeah, yeah, just, yeah. yeah. It's, Actually, I have noticed that. Wow. It's, it's so fucking fucked up. It's crazy. So if you, you don't, don't also, have that to talk about, then well, what else did she do? I think also you didn't want to be interviewing somebody like you were mainly in a guy's world. Yeah, very, yeah. And you didn't want them to be looking at you and thinking who you were having sex with. Well, it's interesting. Like I had, um, so after I had a baby, I remember that I had this conversation with Joe Budden. And he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, you know, the craziest part about you having a kid is that that's the first time that I even thought that you had sex. (laughs) And I was like, yo, that is the greatest compliment that you could give a woman in this industry Mm -hmm. is that you didn't think about me having sex. Mm -hmm. You didn't think about who I was having sex with. Mm -hmm. You didn't even think that I could have sex. You just thought, what are we going to talk about? Is she going to put me on her website? Am I going to go on the radio? You know, am I afraid of what she's going to find out about me or whatever? But also, I think it goes to how much people love and trust you. Because the fact of the matter is everyone around you knows these things. Mm -hmm. And we would never, ever put it out there. Because not because we're afraid of you, just because of all the people in the world who had ample opportunity to put it out there if they wanted to, it's you and you haven't. So all of us just wordlessly Mm -hmm. without any sort of like agreement in place, we're like, it's almost like maybe it is fear. Maybe it's like a detente. We're all just like, yeah, okay. Hmm. I mean, to be fair, what? It, no Whoa. one's no one's offering you like a <laughs> no let's like go. a what Paris match you know <laughs> exclusive. It's not no, no one really every, no that's not true because for everyone Googling. everyone who blogged your like pregnancy announcement uh-huh. photo on Instagram every comment was just like who shot up the club <laughs> oh shit who shot up the club <laughs> that's that was literally the hashtag which I was dying laughing. Um, yeah no but, so you know people want to know it's just that no one's telling them yeah. and no one's found out which is great and it's i mean powerful. you know what in all honesty that means that i i still have the freedom to move on <laughs> it's not too late i can still get on bumble <laughs> and ball out that's because what she wants to do is be alone riding with horses, horses. <laughs> yeah wait wait wait. you have to do julia oh, now yeah, yeah, yeah. okay 10 so years julia Oh, man. Well, I don't know what job this is, but whatever the job is, it's Julia um, in a room with really good coffee, hundreds of books, and then like some type of magic wand where she gets to choose each one and they turn into these huge movie productions that she can lord over, you know, with like... Eight tentacles, mm. um, choosing like naming directors, naming stars, and picking 
songs for the soundtrack, but not having to deal with the the gory parts of like clearing things, salary negotiation, <laughs> yes, um, writer contracts, none of that stuff. Insurance. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, she just wants to basically be able to read a book and be like, "That is going to be a movie." And maybe you're. It's like you being like the female Scott Rudin. He does a lot more. I think he works pretty darn hard. He just makes it miserable for everybody else. There's so much more shouting involved and like yeah, yeah maybe I, this this the whispering Scott Rudin. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I'd be much kinder to people. Is that why you're in England? Because because, because they talk in a po- very polite manner. Right, right. No, for, for <laughs> she's trying horses. to figure it out. She's trying to actually learn a British speak. Yes. Oh, because like putting hues and color and no, flavor and no, it's and, and it's aluminium. not no, it's not speaking like, <laughs> like schedule schedule. No, it's not speaking like Madonna or anything. It's just that they talk around a lot of things. They don't do this. They would never do this kind of a podcast where you tell me something, you ask me my opinion, and then I go, hmm, okay, here it is. Like theirs is a way more mannered sort of dance around these things. Mm. She, Julia, feels like it's has a lot to do with um, being sent away to boarding school. And that that has uh, created a a different class of people who have charm and use that charm to obfuscate. Fan dance all around. (laughs) Yeah. But in such a beautiful way that you're like happy that you've walked away with no answers. This is how I described it to the guys at the at work, and they, like, busted out. I was like, oh, man, I made some people laugh today. Basically, I said, okay, it's, a, it's like I'm in a women's prison. I don't know why I called it a women's prison, but basically, you know that, like, really thick plexiglass between you and me, and we got to pick up the phone? Yeah. And that's the way that we can communicate with each other. Sometimes that's how it feels when I'm talking to a British person, is that we are so far away. There's no connection happening. Uh-huh. I'm in prison. <laughs> You're outside of prison. I'm making a call. <laughs> Two things. One, I feel you because I grew up with British. But I had a British accent until, until the time I was like 16. Two, why do you have to be in the prison? Why can't they be in the prison? I know. I know. It says a lot about me. Yes. I know. But really, honestly, they they knew. First of all, I said that and they knew exactly which exec I was talking about. Oh. Like this one person. They were like, oh, my God, that makes perfect sense. And then... Um, anytime now, I just am talking on the phone and I put it down. And I go, prison. <laughs> and everybody in the office is like, I got you. I understand. Do you love this job that you're in right now? I do. I really, really do. I think it's something that I wish like happened here. It would be as if like um, NPR had tons of money and they were making amazing podcasts and like. What about like Neon and A24 and like. All these places. Those great companies, they're all distributors. They're all buying things. They're doing a little bit of development, but they're also not public. Like, they have to make money, you mm. know? Whereas this place, they right. have to make no, money. You're right. The but NPR they have thing a, is cr- it's crazy that this exists there yeah, and doesn't a, exist it's here. It's called a remit. It's literally like we have a certain um, portion of the funds that every year, no matter what, we don't touch, and those will go to first time writer directors. They will get a chance because we're going to give it to them. Like, that's crazy. That's public funding, for sure. What if one year there's, like, no good first-time people? They're all shitty. Then I'll call you up. I don't know. <laughs> and then I'll get the, ch- I'll get the chance. <laughs> yes, I'm going to cook nepotism. up my idea now. <laughs> <Yeah>. Hip-hopera. 
<laughs> oh my god, you even came up with. By the way, a hip hopper in 2017 would kill. It was would it? Kill. What about that? Was it? Old Remember Carmen? Carmen Yeah, it was a VH1 starring Beyonce. Beyonce, yeah. Carmen. I remember she was this, Carmen, but it was a hip- in, in rhyme. Yeah. Wow, that is so prescient. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Little did they know. Producer fee. Producer yeah. fee. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah. Well, dudes, um, just final question for both of you. What are musical acts, TV shows, movies, any sort of pop culture unit of stuff that you're excited about for the rest of the year? Or even, like, next year? Um, let's see. Well... Interesting. So we're talking about hip hop stuff or stuff that's Whatever coming out that yeah. Oh, things that I'm watching right now that I like or hip hop stuff, either or. Anything that's gonna drop? Anything? Yeah. I mean, I'm not ahead of the curve anymore on what's next, and I and honestly, it's because I um, I avoid listening to things when they first blow up. I am very kind of hard-headed about it, and I just am allergic to hype. So you're so, not banging the XXX Tentacion Um Actually, I am album. a little bit, but I don't think that, I think that that's been, it's been around for, he's been around for a while, and I think that the whole SoundCloud rapper um, lo-fi movement has been around long enough that I have been listening to them. I also, like, um, don't have the same expectation that everybody else does for it like it's not like it's not going to kill hip-hop you know um it's not the first time that people have been it's basically just like heavy metal or punk rock or you know people in mosh pits but it's hip-hop kids so i I don't know i don't see what the big deal is um but i wouldn't pick that as like that's my shit for the whole year. <laughs> do, you know what, do you know what my sister's shit is right now? What? It's uh, this really, really old series of mystery novels called... Um, oh, Louise Penny. Yeah, <laughs> Inspector Gamache. Gamache, Gamache. I'm reading them right now. <laughs> See? How do you feel now, Julia? Uh, I want a licorice pipe with flames on it. Like, all yeah. of it. Okay. I want to eat at the little cafe <laughs> that, where everything's o- for Olivier. sale. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean... Wait, why are you these reading are both, them? These are cozy mysteries. They are so candlelit cozy. I love it. Rural Canada <laughs> mysteries. Yes, I think it's incredible. They speak English and French. And it's fraught in yeah, terms they're of very, what they're they very, like, upset about a lot of... They all have hidden secrets. Um, and it's multicultural. It's a small town. Well, Louise it's not Penny. Multi, it's, there's one black woman who owns the bookstore. And a gay couple. That's true. But they're both white. At any rate, it's Louise Penny <laughs> book series. They're murder mysteries. I love that. I love, um, oh, I love Power. <laughs> that show is bomb. That show is bomb. I heard it's good. I've never watched it. 50 Cent inserts himself into every plot line. It's incredible. But it's actually pretty good and outrageous. So it's like soap opery and uh, campy and good. We have to see what else. I am. Um, we really always we always um, share book recommendations. Okay, so that's what we do all well, the time. Because Julia really, really liked IQ. Yeah, IQ by Joe Ide, which okay. is this um, book about a, like a black guy who lives in like um, South Central, but he's actually more like Sherlock Holmes. He's very he's Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes Ian. Yeah, yeah. And it's but he's set and it was in South Central by this Japanese guy. 
Huh. No way. Yeah, dude. Oh, my God. Yeah. My head crack is great. It's really, really funny. It's very interesting. It looks like it, it's so ripe for becoming a movie. Yeah, yeah it sounds it's, like it's like definitely going to be option. I think it probably is already. Um, and what else? I mean, well, I read um, another book called... Um, um, the Loney, which we are actually are developing into a movie, so that'll be really good. But it's a great sort of horror kind of um, fucked up shit happens in like the moors of England in oh. a small town, and cool. you know you can imagine like yeah, Colin Firth Suspense. in the role or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. just like just some sort of scary stuff that white people do when they think that religion is going to save them kind of a thing. But many, many things. Yeah, many things. Do. Yeah, totally. A little true detective, but like set in the moors of... I'm excited for true detective. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Did you like season two? No, or? I didn't watch it at all, but I can reboot and just forgive and move on to season three. That's very kind Interesting. of you. Interesting. Yeah. This is a okay. The person. memory of a goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay, who are you? <laughs> I'll just consume things. Right, well, thank you guys for... Coming on. This was such a treat. I can't oh, believe I got both you. roses. Oh, man. Roses. Did we, did we do okay? Yeah, you guys know. Yeah, did we get an A? <laughs> <laughs> you guys both get an A+. Plus. Yes! Extra credit! I didn't even know it was extra credit. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you, Mary. Bye. I'm in love with my life. Hey, Cool Job is recorded at Red Bull Studios in New York. With special thanks to Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and Hassan Insane. The song you hear is I'm In Love With My Life by Phases. 